Bibly teach the Bible, so Jesus is exalted, and your spirit can change us through that word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please do take a seat uh, again. And if you happen to have a Bible there, I wonder if you would be kind enough to open it up. 1 Peter chapter 3, that's page 1,219. Uh, page 1,219. I suspect there's a few Bibles at the back if people want, Lascelles or Stuart. Uh, will be kind enough to bring you one, or Agnes, just uh, put a hand up in the air. Page 1,219, uh, this is for 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to look at sentences 8 to 12, uh, which is where we have arrived. Let me read it to us, uh, that short paragraph, so it's fresh in our minds. This is what it says. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For, and then he quotes from an old poet, uh, an old piece of poetry, Psalm 34. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceit. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. There's our little paragraph today, but I just want to start with a little question for a moment. Um, uh, what did you expect when you came to church this morning? Just think about that for a moment. What did you expect when you uh, came to church? Now, I don't mean um, what kind of music did you expect, or what kind of chairs did you think you'd sit on, or uh, what it, I don't mean that kind of stuff. I mean, what kind of people did you expect to meet when you came to church this morning? Did you expect to meet people who, who, were, who, were, who were pretty good? Who were better than average? Who were moving in the right direction? Or did you expect to meet people who were actually ooh, a bit below par, a little bit horrid, a little bit broken? What's your expectations? Because I suspect different of us will have different kind of expectations in those two brackets. That's what I want to think about this morning. That's what I think this passage is about. What are Christians actually like? There you go. What are Christians actually like? You might not be a Christian, of course, in a room this big. That's going to describe quite a few of us. It's fantastic you are here. What are Christians actually like? Well, let me put the question slightly differently. What has Jesus actually done? What has Jesus actually done? Well, let me put it in a slightly different way. The last way, elongated introduction. The last way, what is the fundamental difference between someone who has aligned their life to Jesus, which is all trusting Jesus means, you just lean your weight upon him. What is the fundamental difference between someone who's aligned their life to Jesus and someone who hasn't? What is the difference? See, uh, this paragraph I've just read, the, the shock of this paragraph actually that I've just read, is what he's describing here is the church. This paragraph that Peter here is, is writing is actually talking about the Christians he is writing to. Let me put it in context for you so you can see that. If you've got a Bible there, just look back slightly to chapter 2, sentence 9. Do you see chapter 2, sentence 9, if you've got it there? Peter says this, he says, But you, a big declaration, a, a verbal drum roll, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him 
who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. He's just built this great picture of who Christians are. He says, this is who you are. You declare the praises of him who has done this great thing. And then the rest of his letter is answering the question, how do I do that? How do I live in a way that shows Jesus as excellent? And then he builds through a number of different arenas. If you looked at chapter uh, 2, sentence 30, how do I live in, in the state and with the government? If you look at chapter 2, sentence 18, do you see it there? He's then talking about the workplace. We could interpret that into the workplace. If you look at the beginning of chapter 3, uh, chapter 3, uh, verse 1, wives. That's the second most popular sermon I've preached this year. Uh, chapter 3, verse 7, husbands. That was the most popular sermon I've preached this year. <laughs> He talks about marriage. How do you live to be the praise of Jesus in all these different arenas? Then look at our sentence eight. Do you see it there? Finally, finally. Now that's like a preacher's finally. It doesn't mean we're about to finish, okay? It just means we've reached the last point, okay? Finally, he says, all of you. So now he's moved to the arena of the Christians he's, he's addressing, he's writing this letter to. Some were Christians, some were, some were on that journey. Mixed bag, like us, a bunch of all sorts. But he says, you guys in the church, this is about you. Now in all of these relationships, Peter, like all of the Bible, this was such a relief to me when I first read the Bible as a 20-year-old. Such a relief. I thought the Bible was way up in the clouds. I thought it was about hearts and clouds and fluffiness and marshmallows. I did. I don't know how marshmallows got in there. It's part of the mental imagery I had. And yet when I started to read the Bible, just like Peter here, I realised the Bible does not wear rose-tinted glasses. The Bible does not turn a blind eye to the realities of life. Uh, the, the Bible doesn't whistle in the dark as if everything is okay. It talks about real life. So in all those relationships we've scooted over over the last few weeks of, of teaching and preaching, we've seen things like chapter 2, verse 12. Innocent people are accused of crimes they never committed. That happens in our world, doesn't it? Peter addresses that reality. Uh, chapter 2, verse 18. Bosses who are harsh. Have you got one of them? A harsh bosh? <laughs> <laughs> nudging her, her line manager there. But sometimes the workplace is really difficult, isn't it? Sometimes bosses, line managers are unpleasant people. He doesn't turn a blind eye to this. In uh, chapter 2, sentence 19, he talks about how suffering is so often unfairly distributed. Why is that? Crumbs, don't you have that question? Suffering so unfairly distributed across our world and across our nation? Why? Or, ch or chapter 3, verse 6, he alludes to the reality, the very difficult reality, that in some marriages there is real fear. They are dangerous places to be. And he's the same about the church. Peter does not turn a blind eye to the reality that amongst Christians things are not perfect. What kind of people did you expect to meet this morning? What were your expectations? Peter here talks about the jackal and hide, if you like, the, the beauty and the beast aspect of the church. So I, I just want to pull out two things. 
to get our expectation of, of what being a Christian is. If you're not a Christian, it's a window to look through, to see that. If you're journeying as a Christian, it's a, a prompt and a, a drive forward. Uh, but what does it mean actually to be a Christian? What has, what has Jesus actually done? Really, what has he actually done? And what hasn't he? Here's the first of the two points, is this. The church is full of rebellious, failing Foolish people, just like you and me. The church is full of rebellious, failing, and foolish people, just like you and me. See, the very fact that Peter has to tell them how to respond to evil and insult in the church means there must be evil and insult in the church, doesn't it? So, so look again at what he, he says, uh, sentence 8 and 9, just an example. He says, finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate, humble. Why? Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because this is what you have been called to do. In fact, that word evil appears six times in this little paragraph. It appears three times in sentence nine, again in sentence 10, again in sentence 11, again in sentence 12. It's his big point. The shock is he's talking about in the church. He's talking about the reality, and some of us know this, don't we, that, that amongst Christians sometimes we say really horrid things to each other, don't we? He, he says here, um, in sentence 10, the second half, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech. It, it must mean there are moments that Christians say things that are deceitful and untrue about each other, that are, are horrid. You've experienced that, haven't you? Or some, or some of you have, haven't you? I certainly have. And you're, you're wounded. And you kind of expect this to be the kind of place that doesn't happen. Well, what kind of people did you expect Christians to be? And words can hurt, can't they? Words can hurt enormously. Just pull into a lay-by for a moment. Someone told me that they haven't used that phrase for a while, so I'm going to use it deliberately now. Let's pull into a lay-by for a moment. Um, I think I've told some of you this story before, but one of the fantastic things about a growing church and a shrinking mind is something you haven't heard it and I can't remember anyway. So, I'm going to tell it again. When I, was, uh, when I grew up, I had lovely, lovely, long, blonde hair. Some of you heard this, haven't you? Amazing long. It's hard to believe now, but it was stunning, this long, long hair. I also grew up overseas. I grew up in Africa. I came back when I was about 11 years old. My hair came down to about here, shoulder length. And when you pulled it straight, it came even further. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing. Beautiful thing. Matt, you'd have been so jealous. It was, it was beautiful, this hair. Okay. And I turned up, and I didn't really wear shoes, so my feet were like hobbits' feet. Yeah, I'd grown up where it was hot, and shoes weren't really necessary. I turned up in England, I rolled into school, I was very, very tanned. Uh, my skin wasn't the kind of colour that most people had midwinter in, in England. Um, I had this long, long, long kind of hair, these hobbit feet, and I rolled into school. And within about a week, I was really badly bullied. Really badly bullied. And I went home. I remember one time going home. And my mum saying this little ditty to me. Do you know this little ditty? You will, don't you? Some of you know what's coming, don't you? Sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt you. I discovered at 9, 10, 11 years old, that isn't true. That isn't true. In fact, I would have rather had sticks and stones, I think, than words. But words are even more painful when they come from people you, you expect to be different, aren't they? 
Come on, we're in the same church. Call yourself a Christian. Why did you say that to me? And weirdly, it's so much harder to forgive. Have you found that as well? So much harder to forgive. And yet Peter is kind of saying, reset your expectations a little bit. On Wednesday mornings, Matt, Kevin, I, and now Carol. Carol's doing a, a Bible course down in, in Birmingham one day a week. She's fantastic at giving up a day a week to invest in herself as a teacher of the Bible. She's come to join us. And on Wednesday mornings, we have an hour and a half together. We spend time in the Bible passage that's going to be preached. We pray together. We pray for people in the church. Carol made a very simple, very profound comment on this. Really helpful. She said, aren't all Christians human beings first? And we are, aren't we? We're human beings first. So Peter begins here with an expectation, doesn't he? He says, actually, the church is full of, thank goodness, because it means I'm welcome here, the church is full of failing, foolish, rebellious people just like me and you. But now, I think that should throw up a question in our heads. So let's now not put it into a lay-by, let's now put it into a proper service station, have a proper break, a sit down and a bit of a feast. And I always go for the... Um, the chips and fish and chips at a service station, it's always better than anything else there, right? So we're sitting down, we're going to have a bit of a feast. This is a proper stop. This is the question to feast on. What has Jesus done then? Is that not your question? If in essence Peter is saying there's still evil and insult going on in the life of the church, and our experience does prove his word right there, doesn't it? What has Jesus actually done when it comes to sin? Now, I've drawn a table. Okay, thank you. Now, this is actually quite important. Okay, this is actually really important. When it comes to sin, which is the word that describes our foolish, silly behaviours and our, our evil actions and our horrid words and all that kind of stuff, what is it that Jesus has done? Now, there is a penalty that our sin deserves. And there is a presence of that sin in our life. Now the thing that Jesus has done when he died on the cross was to deal with the penalty, past tense. That the penalty, the punishment for our folly and foolishness, Jesus himself has taken in our place. Amazingly, he substituted himself in our place so we no longer had to stand there and he took all that rightful punishment, rightful penalty upon himself. Now notice the past tense. He has dealt with that in the past. Often in the Bible that's called justification. Now break that word down as a helpful way to understand it. Justification, justified. Just as if I'd never done it. Just as if I'd never done it. Do you see that? Justified. When it comes to the penalty, the consequence for our actions, it's just as if I've never done it. And you see that in places like 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, where Peter writes about Jesus. He says, For Christ died for sin, one for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He did it once in the past. It covers all sin once for all. He has dealt with that penalty. He's done it by his death. It's once for all. It's absolutely immediate in its coverage. It covers everything from past, present and future. The penalty has been dealt with. Now that is right at the heart of the great good news of Christianity. That is it. I am declared innocent of my crimes. Declared innocent. Notice I'm not innocent. I did but I'm declared innocent 
because the punishment has been taken by Jesus. Do you see that? And God is a just judge. He will not punish the same crime twice. I stand before him as a criminal, but he says I've punished that crime. It is unjust if I punish it twice. That's not fair, so you are free. That is forgiveness. The penalty is dealt with, past tense. But the presence of sin, with all its pain and pollution, the reality that I still say horrid words, and I still do unkind things, and I'm still an imperfect person, the penalty of that is still dealt with. The penalty of tomorrow's sin has been dealt with, but it's still present. Now we know that from our experience, don't we? Not just things done to us, but the things I do. And that comes with pain, and that comes with pollution. But Jesus is dealing with that. Notice the different tense. He has dealt with the penalty, but he's dealing with present and future with our sin now. That the Bible calls sanctification. There are those two theological words. Sanctification, the gradual changing to become more like Jesus. And that's why Peter carried on writing after chapter 2, verse 11. Two-thirds of Peter's book is because we are not perfect. Why did he have to write to husbands and wives? Why did he have to write to employees? Because the sin is still present and is slowly being dealt with. That's the work of Jesus' spirit in our lives. That's bit by bit, day by day, gradual. And where our response to Jesus' death is trust. I just trust in his death to deal with the penalty. I'm declared innocent because of what Jesus has done. And I trust he has done it. Our response to the presence of sin is obedience. I understand what he tells me here in Peter about my marriage, about my workplace. And by God's spirit, I obey it. I obey it. And each day, step by step, bit by bit, the presence of sin is decreased. Now, I believe the Bible teaches we can never be perfect this side of heaven. Other people think, theoretically, there is that possibility. I say, go for it, mate. I don't think it's going to happen to me. And I don't think the Bible teaches anyone other than Jesus this side of heaven was perfect. But I do believe there is wonderful good news. Not just that the penalty has been dealt with, I'm declared innocent, therefore I can get into heaven where only innocent people can go. But also, I'm full of hope because I know that by Jesus' spirit, he is dealing <coughs> bit by bit with the presence of sin in my life, the power, if you like, of sin in my life. I'm, I win a little bit more against sin now than I did five years ago. Just a little bit. Oh, thank you, Jesus. That's fantastic. Now, distinguishing these two things is really, really important. And it comes to the rub, I think, in the life of the church. Because rightly or wrongly, some of us as Christians go, we shouldn't treat each other like that. No, we shouldn't. But we do because sin is still present. It doesn't mean that person is not a Christian. Are they trusting in the penalty being taken by Jesus? And simply battling with the presence like us all. I'm going to pause for a moment and just let you think that through. Because that's a little bit of, of light theology that has massive implications on understanding your own life. It makes a massive difference to your assurance, are you really a Christian? 
Have you ever done something? Sin is present. And it's made you doubt whether you really are a Christian. It's because you misunderstood what Jesus has done. Do you see? Do you see? He's paid for the penalty. Your assurance is in his death. Not in your failure to obey his spirit. Pick yourself up. Keep going. Doesn't put a question mark over whether you are saved or not. Has huge application in understanding what to expect from one another. So there's the first of the two points. The church is full of rebellious, failing, foolish people, just like you and me. That's why Peter has to give them instructions about how they're to respond to that. Here's the second bit, and this is much better news you'll be pleased to know, is the church is full of compassionate, loving, humble, sympathetic people, just like you and me. You see that? That we're both, both. Have you ever realised that? We're both, both. Just pick up a newspaper and you can see that, can't you? On one page there's some horrendous story about some horrific act. On the next page there's a picture of a baby or something like that. And you go, oh, isn't that kind of cute? Because we're both, both, aren't we? We're Jackal and Hyde, we're Beauty and Beast, all wrapped up together. We're rebellious, failing fools at the same time as being compassionate, humble, loving, forgiving people. We are both together. And the fact he is able to tell them how to respond to evil and insult means that there is every possibility and capacity for us to respond to horrible things done to us with grace, love, humility, forgiveness and compassion. Look at sentence 8 again. Finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so you might inherit a blessing. That is what we are called to. That because we have Jesus' spirit working at the presence of sin in our life, we can respond not with evil back, but with love back, and humility back, and forgiveness back, and compassion back, and grace back. Do you see that? If there was one key verse to underline as we come into land, it would be sentence 11. Why don't you just glance at it there? Sentence 11, which says, the second half, it says, they must seek peace and pursue it. They must seek peace and pursue it. See, that sentence to me is laden with hope. That Jesus is saying to me, I can be the one who can seek peace and pursue it. Now that is not passive, is it? That's proactive, that's stepping across the room, that's picking up the phone, that's <coughs> writing the note, that's making the mends, that's asking for help and mediation. But Jesus is saying, you can seek peace. You can pursue reconciling what has been done to you. We are not destined to continue down in a spiral of insult on insult or evil on evil. We are the ones who can actually intercept that and change the whole trajectory of that. We can seek peace and pursue it. So the application is really, really simple. Here it is. I want you to think about it for a moment. Who do you need to step across the room and talk to? The word was said to you four years ago. And it came out of a foolish, failing, rebellious heart, just like your heart. 
Just step across the room and extend a hand. Jesus has given us the power to do that. Or is it pick up the phone? And reach out to someone. Is it just write the note? Or is it pretty serious and you, it, what you need to do is ask for help? You've seen Kevin up here and you've seen Chris up here, you've seen me up here. There's Matt, there's, there's friends. Just, just ask someone, I, I need some help with this. I really was wounded by what they said. Or I know I really wounded them. I want to pursue peace. I want to be the one who pursues peace. And our amazing role model, case study for this, is the person who wrote Psalm 34. That's the quote here, is from Psalm 34, this ancient piece of poetry, was David. David became the greatest king of Israel, but when he wrote this, he was an outlaw, not because of anything he had done, but because he was hated by the then king, King Saul. King Saul repeatedly tried to murder David for nothing David has done wrong. And David's response, repeatedly, was to seek peace and pursue it. Even when David twice had opportunities to kill King Saul, once when King Saul was sleeping and David snuck up on him, once when King Saul was relieving himself and David snuck up on him, and instead David sought peace and pursued peace. That's why this psalm is quoted. It's the call to be like David, ultimately like Jesus. Jesus who pursued peace with us so much that he left heaven, came to earth, went to a cross, was put in a grave. That's how far Jesus pursued it. That while we were still God's enemies, Christ died for us. Romans 5 verse 9. So the application this morning is really simple. It's really simple. Is don't finish our final song with the offering and all the rest of it. Don't finish that final song without a resolute commitment to pick up the phone, to write the note, to step across the room, to ask for help, to seek peace and pursue it. Because we all are failing rebellious fools. And we are all compassionate, humble, loving, forgiving, gracious people. <coughs> Let me pray for us.